Okay, in a minute we're going to go live. Does my sound sound okay? Yeah, you sound, you sound and you look beautiful. Oh, thank you. You're more than welcome. <laughs> I'm so happy to see you. Okay. Good morning, dear Tiffany. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm so happy to see you. I'm so delighted. You have no idea. I was waiting for this the whole week. So um, I'm delighted. And uh, would it be okay uh, if I make a small introduction of you? you? You wouldn't mind. That's very kind. Thank you so much. Of course. So uh, dear Tiffany, which is Dr. Tiffany Vera, Vera for most of us. I'm pronouncing it correctly. Yes. It's Vora, V-O-R-A. Oh, I'm sorry. I keep doing that. Even though it's written Vora. Okay, I'm so sorry. But for you, for me, you're Tiffany. What can I do? Um, well, she is a, she's an incredible teacher before anything else. Extremely inspiring on, this is my personal, she's my mentor. And she is a thought leader who uses uh, bio and tech-focused mindset to stimulate leaders, companies, and industry to design for not less than the best possible future. She's a humanist, she, she's an optimist, and she's a very, very wise person. So in addition to working as a, a founder, a co-founder of several startups, she's currently the vice chair of digital biology and medicine in Singularity University in the heart of uh, Silicon Valley. But before that, previously, she was the faculty director of Singularity Global Ecosystem of, of Experts and Thought Leaders. She has a very a vast in, and interesting history in the field. And well, she got a PhD from the Department of Molecular Biology in Princeton University, where she worked in the emerging field of genomic system biology and compute, oh, computational biology. She later served as a visiting assistant professor in the American University in Cairo and as an instructor of the Department of Bioengineering in Stanford University. Uh, listen, I can read your uh, achievement. It will take us the whole hour, I think. I'm concerned. I don't think you should do it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I think for me personally, and for I think for all the people who came as pupils, to uh, Singularity, you were a source of inspiration. Uh, and, and, and not only by your knowledge, but your wisdom and your humanity and your warmth attitude. And I, you know, one of the most important lessons I learned from you, and probably you're going to talk about it, but I want to say that we are all similar 99.9% and you keep saying the reason that we kill each other is really not rooted in anything biological or logical. So with this, um, before we dive in, I was wondering whether you want to add something else before we start. No, I, I think that was a really generous introduction. Thank you so much. I'm just so excited to help people all around the world understand how science and technology are coming together in order to help us meet some of the greatest challenges we've ever known as a species. COVID-19, of course, we've seen the magic of bio and tech in the last year, but also looking forward to things like climate change. I honestly believe that biotechnology is going to be possibly the strongest tool 
that we will have in order to make sure that our planet stays a, a welcoming home for our children and their children and their children. So honestly, everything that I do is about leaving the world a better place for my son. And I'm so excited that you're on that journey with me. You're too kind, thank you, thank you. Can you tell us about how did you came? I mean, what happened? How, you know, from a, a, you know, a small child, <laughs> sure. How did I end up here? <laughs> well, yeah. uh, only some only some of it was planned. Um, so, you know, I honestly believe that every child is a scientist. Every child looks at the world around them and asks a million questions about it. And I guess I just never really stopped doing that. So my father is a, is a chemist, actually. So I grew up when I was a kid, my dad would take my brother and me to the lab with him on weekends which sounds like good parenting, except mostly he had a squashing glassware. So I, I grew up actually thinking I was going to be a chemist. I thought I was going to be a chemist and I thought I was going to be a medical doctor. And I had worked in my dad's lab for a few summers. And the last summer, uh, it was you know a process chemistry lab. And the last summer, I think I was 19, 18, 19, something like that. And I spent the entire summer measuring the carbon content of water. Do you know what the carbon content of water is? No, I have no idea. It's zero. It's zero. Yeah. It needs to be zero every single day if you're making drugs, right? The water has to be absolutely pure. And after doing that for many, many weeks, I was like, I cannot do this for a living. Like chemistry, I still believe for me, chemistry is still um, largely where my heart is. It's where all my early training was in. But I just thought I can't do this for a living. So I was interested um, in being a doctor. And, you know, at the time, being a doctor was sort of the only thing I knew about how to be interested in living things. I suppose I could have been a veterinarian, but that wasn't really um, on my radar. I thought I was going to be a doctor. And so when I got to my undergraduate college, which was New York University, um, I got really lucky. You know, I did really, really well in my classes and some of my science professors noticed me and uh, brought me into a genetics laboratory. And that was a moment where I went through about a year and a half of really deep crisis because I spent all this time thinking that I wanted to be a medical doctor. And now all of a sudden I was doing genetics research in a laboratory. And that was so fascinating to me. And finally, um, one of my mentors he sat me down and he was like, look, are you more interested in knowing what people know today or are you more interested in um, what people don't know? And I said, I'm, I'm interested in what people don't know. And he said, okay, then I think you should go get a PhD instead of an MD. And so that's what I did. I, I worked for a little while at a pharmaceutical company after my undergraduate work. And then I went and did uh, research at Princeton as a PhD student. And I mean, I have never regretted that. I loved the science that I do. And so science, being a scientist is kind of this amazing thing. You, you never really turn it off. Um, every day I get up and I look outside and I look out the window um, and I just see all this amazing life around me. And I'm, I'm married to a, a cellular biophysicist. So our son, who is 10, uh, is growing up all the time talking about molecules and cells and plants and animals and how they all come together. And he claims he's not going to be a biologist when he grows up. I'm actually fine with that. But what I really want him to appreciate is how beautiful and precious and unique life is around us and when you understand how it works I think it's even more exciting so yeah that's that's kind of my my basic story about how I ended up here 
and and you never look back on you know on your dream of for being a doctor you know and taking taking patients no so you know i i don't and part of the reason for that was actually when i was doing my phd work i was an emergency medical technician so the person who rides in the back of the ambulance so i was able to get sort of frontline healthcare experience as a volunteer this was right after september 11th in new jersey so there was a lot going on and that was a really good experience for me it taught me a lot about um people and empathy and what people are afraid of and how they make decisions. But it, it also just showed me that I felt like I could make stronger contributions, uh, first in the laboratory and now out in the world, helping people understand how that works. The only thing I regret a little bit, and I will admit this, is um, for a while I had thought about being a marine biologist. And mm -hmm. so I am a pretty serious scuba diver now. And so every time I get in the ocean, I'm like, I could have been doing this for my job. <laughs> so, you know, oh, well, that's okay. I just do it now as uh, as an amateur. But uh, I guess, yeah, if I could go back and do it over again, I might have done a little more of the marine biology, marine ecology. Um, but in my heart, I'm a molecular biologist. I love the molecular world. And I think there's just so much there that we still have to learn. It's just so exciting. But, you know, we both believe that you're going, we are all, I mean, you know, that there is going to be a jump in the amount of time that we, you know, the, in the, so it meaning if we're going to live for 200 years, well, at the age of 100, you can become, you know, you can change your profession, no? It's, it's I've not... already switched professions a bunch of times. So yes, I completely hear you. The longer and healthier we live our lives, the more opportunity we have to do yeah, these so... things that really light us up. And you might end up working on Mars, who knows? Fingers crossed. <laughs> so wonderful. So, so can you tell me a little bit? And and you know, most of people in Israel don't really understand the biotech, and and you know, and this is where you're living. This is the hub. This is why you're getting up in the morning with this beautiful smile on your face. So, can you tell the audience, which some of them simply don't know about it, you know, what is it? How is how did it suddenly? How did it evolve? And what does it contain? Or what? Whatever you think it's important to learn about this topic. Sure. So uh, biotechnologies can be, think, uh, can be thought of as a group of tools and technologies that we use to either measure the processes of living things, affect the processes of living things. But now we're into this exciting era where biotechnology is also technology that is actually based on living things. So phrases that I use a lot is one where I say, Actually, now the biology is the technology. We're entering into this fascinating era where our nanotechnology, AI, sensors, computers, all of these things are becoming um, more and more able to be integrated into living things. And we've gotten a lot more clever at a bunch of the tools that we use to manipulate living things. And I'll tell you more about that in a minute. But all of that means that thanks to biotechnology, we're able to harness the four billion years that life on earth has had to innovate, right? You can think of evolution or um, the, you know, natural selection as being an innovation process, right? You have a prototype, you test it out, you pick the best one, you do it again. And so more and more, we're starting to see that we can look to the natural world for inspiration, for really powerful molecular and cellular and even organismal um, 
things that we can turn into tools. And I'll give you the simplest example I can think of that, um, which was CRISPR. So CRISPR is all over the headlines these days. We use it, we humans use it as a gene editing technology. It lets us go in and change precisely and permanently, one base pair at a time, a DNA sequence. And DNA is the source code for all life on Earth. But humans didn't invent CRISPR. The CRISPR-Cas system is actually the bacterial immune system. That's how bacteria are able to recognize when a virus, which for bacteria is called a phage, when a phage infects the bacterium and the bacterium fights it off, the CRISPR system is actually how the bacterium is ready to fight it again the next time by having these molecular scissors that now we're using for all kinds of really fascinating things. So Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier, the two women who won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 2020, friends, go tell your daughters they can win Nobel Prizes too. It's a really important lesson. But what they had the insight was to say, wow, here's this really kind of cool, crazy thing we've been, we found in bacteria. I wonder if we can turn it into something else. And that I wonder if thinking is what's really driving so much of the amazing innovation that we're seeing in this space right now. So ask me another question about biotechnology because I can go on all day. Bio, no, no, I love it. It's nearly what you're saying is like biomimicry, biomimicry, I mean, in a sense uh, in this, okay. And can you give another example besides CRISPR, which I think is a beautiful example. Can you give another example of what we can learn and what you're saying, harness the, you know, the abilities of nature um, before anything else, before, before we dive in, or because you also talking a lot about how you change nature. So yeah, before that, yeah. So, so uh, oh my gosh, there's, there's so many. So um, I'll give you a more, what almost sounds like a science fiction example, um, but is actually science reality, is science fact today. And that is this amazing field called cellular agriculture. So cellular agriculture, you might also know as lab-grown meat. It's growing animal cells, animal, fish, you know, land animals, fish, anything like that, in the laboratory, and then turning that into meat that people can actually eat. Now, what's interesting to me is that the roots of cellular agriculture actually are in tissue engineering. So for many, many years, scientists and doctors have been trying to figure out how can we grow tissues in the laboratory so that we can transplant them into a human body? So let's say the corneas in your eye go bad. How can I grow you new corneas? Or the, as we all know, as we get older, your knees don't work quite so much uh, anymore, right? Your cartilage gets bad. So how could I grow cartilage in the laboratory and then put it into knees, for example? So that's tissue engineering. But then not so long ago, somebody was like, well, what if we eat it instead? That's kind of the same thing because all that a steak is, is cow muscle. That's all it is, right? It's just another part that's coded in our biology. So cellular agriculture, this idea of being able to eat meat without killing an animal, really kind of jumped off from the tissue engineering world. And in some ways, it's easier to make food than it is to make replacement body parts, right? Like the standards are different. But just the way people think really carefully about what they put in their bodies, people are also asking a lot of questions about cellular agriculture. You know, if I eat a steak that was grown in the lab, is it really a steak? Now, Tiffany, the biologist, says, yes, of course it is. It's the same parts. It's 
the same DNA, it's the same cells, the whole thing. But Tiffany, the foodie says, well, wait a minute, how does it taste? And so that's where we're coming to the, another really interesting inflection and interesting point in biotechnology, where we're getting really good at translating things that the natural world has invented and innovated on its own. But now we get to say, what are the human values that we bring to this? You know, food is one of the things that everyone on earth has in common. We all eat together. Eating is a social contract. It's an identity construct as well. So what does it mean, for example, if I grow, um, if I grow bacon for you in the laboratory, is it kosher? I've actually been to a, a really cool talk about that. Mm -hmm. The answer seems to be maybe. It's complicated. <laughs> but the fact that we're having these conversations, I get excited because it opens up a whole new range, not just of flavors and experiences that we can have for food, but it also means we have the chance to really change how we make food, right? We, for example, could, I can see a future where humans no longer torture and kill billions of sentient animals every year in order to, to, to feed everyone. Um, and I think that's a pretty exciting future is the future in which agriculture is no longer the one of the greatest damaging forces that humans exert on the planet. So again, thinking about climate change and sustainability, this whole biotechnology innovation space of renovating our food system, I think is really exciting. And then you mentioned Mars, so I'm just gonna bring it up. If we're gonna put people in deep space, if we're gonna have them go to Mars for years at a time or maybe go and never come back, you don't want that to be a miserable existence, right? Like we wanna take with us the things we really care about. And for me, that's food. Um, on one of my uh, Mars missions that I did, a Mars analog mission, we had a reporter with us from the New York Times. And he said, "Are you, if I gave you a ticket today, would you go? And I said, um, there were six of us on our team plus the reporter. And I mm -hmm. said, if they don't have cheese, I'm not going. And the reporter was the only person who laughed. And he looked at our faces and he was like, wow, you're not kidding. And I was like, no, I'm not kidding. I want cheese in space because I really like cheese. So it's not just about making us healthier. It's not just about making the planet healthier. I'm excited by biotech because I think we can use it to build the world that we really want to live in and to lead the lives that we really want to live as people, as teams, as families, as societies as a species that's why I get so excited about this stuff Tiffany may I say you know I know you I think for six or seven years and you still have the same amount of enthusiasm and and, and optimistic can you tell can you explain you know I'm, I'm being seen as extremely optimistic optimistic here in Israel people look at it how can you can you can you tell us what makes you so optimistic and how this the biotech, you know, is, is a part of it, but I think it goes beyond that. Am, am I right? It does. And then we'll go so, back to biotech. Yeah. <laughs> because you're so, so inspiring. So I, I, we have to talk about it. So for one thing, I mean, I've been a professional biologist for the last 20 years. Um, I'm not going to say more than that so that you don't know how old I am. Come on, but, you're 30 uh, years old. Come on. <laughs> um, but just the change that, I have seen in the last 20 years, I can't, I can't believe it. Um, mm. Or that when I go to my husband's lab at Stanford and I see what the graduate students are doing and how the stuff that I used to do that was so hard, so hard, and I had to do it with my hands and I had to stay up all night. And, you know, we, we were 
not just building the airplane while we were flying it. We were, I, I, we were inventing the idea of having an airplane. And then we started building it and we were in the air. It is so different now, right? The way we are able to use robotics and we are able to use computation to give superpowers to our scientists and our doctors, I can't believe how different it is. And it's only 20 years. So if that's what the last 20 years were like, and you know your exponential thinking, right? We keep accelerating. Gosh, what are the next 20 years going to be like? And one of the things that I think keeps me optimistic is I actually really enjoy being wrong in my field, right? <laughs> so last year, um, I wrote an article where someone was like, how long is it going to take to get a COVID vaccine? And I was like, you know, the, the absolute shortest, fastest vaccine there's ever been has been 10 years. So if we can do this in five years, this will be a miracle. And how quick was it? It was a year, one year, right? And it was one year where people around the world decided to put down what they were doing and solve the biggest problem that we have. And I, I just, my gosh, like I was wrong. I was totally wrong about how fast that happened. And what excites me too is the fact that a lot of these vaccines, for example, like the Pfizer vaccine that um, you all have in Israel, it's actually a platform. So anytime you need an update, like for a new variant, like we're seeing with Delta and Lambda, or even a new infectious disease, it's a plug and play system. You pop out the piece that was specific for this particular uh, variant or uh, virus, and then you pop in the new DNA sequence. That is so different from how most vaccines have been made in the past, that it just tells me that innovation can happen faster and faster and as we get things like um, the, uh, you know, th these various AI algorithms that are now almost instantaneously calculating protein structure, this is, a, you, I can't actually overemphasize how important that is. Technology is giving us superpowers. And so when I look at the future, I believe that people like you and people like me and people like our listeners, as long as we keep our eye on the ball and we say, this is what's important to us. This is what we're designing for, not technology for technology's sake, but to actually make the world better. I believe things are just going to get better and better and better. And yeah, I hope I live longer, you know, than my mother did so that I can see all of these amazing things that are happening. Yeah. And, and I, if I may say, can I quote you for a second? You said you are the granddaughter of your church. <laughs> the scientific daughter, yeah. So the, I'm no, the no. <laughs> yeah, I'm the scientific granddaughter of George Church, and I'm actually also the scientific daughter, uh, granddaughter of Cynthia Kenyon. So yeah, I uh, my PhD work was done in Saeed Tavazoe's lab. Uh, it was at Princeton then; he's at Columbia now. And every one of us was working on an independent project where, in order to get to the insight that we wanted, we had to invent the technology in order to do it. And you know, silly me, I was a 22 year old graduate student. I was like, once I invent the technology, then it's gonna be easy after that. But then I suddenly realized I can't, I can't analyze these data with my human brain and my human hands. I've gotta get the computer to do it. And my advisor's like, well, you know how to program, right? And I was like, no, I'm a biologist. I have no idea how to program. So suddenly I had to teach myself to program. And that's why now when people say, what should I teach my kids? I'm like programming teach your kids programming, no matter what field they think they're going to go into, whether they think they're going to be an artist or an architect or whatever it is, teach them to program. And especially if you have girls, teach your girls to code. 
it is so important that we get as much creativity, as much diversity in these technology spaces as possible. And I think you do that by getting kids interested when they're really young. Then it becomes natural to them. Yes, I can write code. I'm not a very good coder. I'm not going to lie. My code works, but it's not pretty. I'm trying to get my son to have it be so easy and so natural that he thinks, why wouldn't I have the computer solve this program for me, this problem for me, so that I can go on and use my human creativity for a bigger issue? Wow, 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 wow. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about the history of the field? I mean, uh, people don't know about it. So definitely, you know, for, and people who are starting to hear it, the CRISPR, of course, now people, but really don't, don't it's like, you know, we, we know, uh, you know, that the AI is with us like what, nearly 70 years. Can, can you tell us about where, where it all started and why suddenly we hear about that? What's sure, it, what's so uh, like everything, it was kind of a long, slow build. So, you know, for many hundreds of years, you might even argue thousands of years if you want to go back to folks like Aristotle, we had folks, uh, mostly men, of course, who were observers of the natural world. And so um, for a long time, as, you know, physics and mathematics became more predictive and then chemistry became more predictive and insightful, biology really kind of lagged behind. So you might remember that old, I think it's JBS Haldane quote where he said, um, there's physics, chemistry, and stamp collecting. Because yeah. really that's yeah, what yeah, biology yeah, yeah, was yeah. at that point, right? It was, it was looking around and seeing what you saw and then drawing a picture and writing it down. Now in um, 1930s, 1940s, uh, that's when molecular biology started taking off. And so that was when we really started to understand how does heredity work? DNA is the molecule of heredity. That seems like something a kindergartner knows now, but in the 1930s and 1940s, nobody was really sure about that, right? And also remember during that time period, you also had that big push in nuclear science, right? So you had the greatest physicists in the world, a lot of them, moving into things like nuclear energy and nuclear weapons. Now, the flip side to that was you also had some physicists who were moving into biology and saying, well, wait a minute, all of these stamps that you've collected, how do they actually work? And you had chemists coming in and asking the same question. What are the molecules that are actually making these things work? And so in the 1940s and the 1950s, that's when we learned about DNA. That's when we learned about RNA. That's when all of those complicated biochemical charts started getting filled out. How does photosynthesis work? How does the um, TCA cycle work? All of these things. And so we got better and better and better at assembling what I think of as parts lists. Here are all the parts in a living thing. Here's how they all fit together. And then in the 1970s, you got this really exciting breakthrough called recombinant DNA engineering. And that is when somebody realized that again, we could take this tool that bacteria had already invented that cut DNA at very specific places uh, and that had particular patterns, these cool palindromic sites. And then they realized, well, wait a minute, if I have a piece of DNA that has an overhang that looks like this, and then I take a piece of DNA from somewhere completely different that has the complementary overhang, wait a minute, I can stick those together and make a new molecule that didn't exist in either species A or species B. And this was a huge insight because that changes you from being an observer to being an engineer. So 
There was the famous Asilomar conferences in the 1970s, uh, not too far from my home in California, where people were like, well, wait a minute, what are we going to do with this technology? Because this is potentially revolutionary. And I think it was a beautiful example of scientists and ethicists and policymakers and journalists coming together and having these really fraught, tense, but open conversations about what do we want to do with this technology? And how do we make sure that we don't accidentally do something awful with it? And so that was in the 1970s. Uh, so now what you should start to be thinking is, okay, now we're moving into the, the 1980s, the 1990s, computers are starting to get cheaper, they're starting to get faster, and more and more folks are realizing they can start using computers to come together with the biology and grow things. So the Human Genome Project is a perfect example of that in um, the 1990s, where you had these um, two groups, that's a simplistic rendering, but you had a group of government scientists all over the world, but also, you know, there was a focus in the United States who were using very classical labor-intensive technologies to very accurately, for the time, decode the sequence of A's, C's, T's, and G's in the human genome. We have about, let's call it three billion. We have about three billions of those. And then you had Craig Venter, right? Craig Venter, who's running uh, another company, and he gets a call one day offering him some supercomputers that um, basically the Department of Defense is um, decommissioning. Does he want these computers that they don't want anymore? And I remember I, I heard him once give a talk where he said he thought it was a crank call, like he hung up on the person multiple times before saying, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll take your computers. And that's how you got um, TIGER, the, the Institute for Genome Research, which was the, uh, and Solera Genomics, which was the private company that was saying, you know what? Instead of trying to do this as accurately as possible, let's blast through the chemistry and then let the computer figure out what the right answer is. And so you might remember in uh, 2000, you had the simultaneous publication of both the public and the private versions of the human genome, which they called it a tie. Again, it's a fascinating story that you should totally read a book about. But that I think is really this moment where somebody was like, wait a minute, I don't actually need more scientists, I need more computers. And now since then, our computers, our algorithms, um, our scientists, our robots have gotten ever faster, ever cheaper, ever more powerful to the point where now um, we still have refrigerator-sized DNA sequencers like we did back in the 1990s. Now they're incredibly more powerful, but we also have handheld DNA sequencers that you can plug into a laptop, you can put it in a car and drive somewhere and do DNA sequencing, or you can hook it up to your smartphone and do it like in your pocket. That is so different from the way things were 20 years ago. And if that's what this 20 years of change looks like, you know, what's the next 20 years? It's amazing. So I really think that this is that the evolution of biotechnology that we've seen. Um, we've got it in agriculture, we've got it in healthcare, we are seeing it growing in biomaterials, all kinds of really cool um, types of uh, applications like synthetic biology, where you, again, you're using a living thing as a factory. You can also use a living thing as a sensor. You can use it as a power plant. And once you get that idea in your head that the biology is the technology, then suddenly everything opens up and all of these new verticals become available to you. I mean, do you think about a bacterium as a sensor? 
do you think about? I mean, you probably think about it because you talk to me a lot, but so do you think someone else thinks about this it? This is my pleasure, yeah. And I'm listening to you when I don't speak to you. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. And again, like the thing that I love so much about keeping up with the scientific literature is I'm constantly surprised. Somebody came up with a way to use a bacterium like a camera. Oh my God, George Church's lab. Oh my God, that's amazing, right? Or um, there's just so many of them every day. And I still get that feeling inside me where I think, oh my gosh, this is so smart. What a great idea. And that's only the scientific stories I know about. There's so many more out there and there's so much creativity. And I just, I love too that biotechnology is becoming more and more democratized. And it's not just in high tech countries like Israel or, or the United States or, or the UK, this stuff is becoming cheaper and more accessible. And we're getting more and more people involved in making science, you know, people from all parts of the world, men and women and everything in between. There's so much more diversity and science is fundamentally a creative endeavor. It really is. I don't know how people get the idea that science is boring. It's not, it's, it's so creative. And I just, yeah, I just can't wait to see what's next. That's what I wanted to, to ask you. Where do you think it's gonna go? You know, where are we going from here? And, and perhaps we can, you know, talk about it in the frame of the big opportunities of, of the human race, as we talked about Mars or other, what do you think uh, if, 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 we, if we had a crystal ball and if we could have looked you know, 20 years into the future and says, oh, this is where it went. What, what do you think, how can we use it? I mean, to, yeah. you know, to create a better future for all of us. So, so I think actually that synthetic biology, uh, which is a field where again, you're using the biology as the hardware that runs the software of something you've encoded with DNA. I really think synthetic biology is just getting ready to pass this inflection point. Mm -hmm. So I mentioned before that we can be thinking of living things as sensors, as factories, as um, power plants. We can do that, but we need to tinker a little bit to make those systems um, more efficient and to really be undergoing the, the behavior, the biology that we humans want. And again, compared to 10 years ago, we are in phenomenally better shape for that. And I think we're just at the edge of this inflection where we're gonna be seeing living things used so much more for materials, using it as sensors. Um, I don't know if you know this, but there's this really cool um, initiative going on where a researcher has embedded tiny, tiny, tiny little, um, basically like kind of like RFID sensors, but more powerful than that. And then he got the folks running the International Space Station to allow him to put an antenna up there. And oh, so now wow. from space, he's able, his team is able to monitor where are these animals migrating? What are they doing? There are even places where folks have tried to use animals as sensors. Like there was a, a village in Italy that had this folk tale that the goats always knew when an earthquake was coming. So someone was like, maybe we should be paying attention to the goats as an alternate form of earthquake sensor. And there's lots of examples around this all over the world. What's exciting for scientists is getting in there and extracting what part of this information is really useful. And then how do we use technology to supercharge that? So um, I think with synthetic biology, with reprogramming living things to make the molecules we want, to make the cells we want, to make the tissues that we want, I think we are just beginning to see um, 
how that is really going to change everything. Um, you know, a, a, one of my favorite examples is that, that is uh, folks who are using yeast cells. So this is basically the same yeast that we use to make bread or beer. And they're making all kinds of molecules like artemisinin, which is an anti-malarial compound, or THC, which is the psychoactive substance in marijuana, right? Or some folks are trying to use it for psilocybin. Once we can start taking out the pieces that we want from living things, and then using something like yeast to make them in the amounts or the types that we want, now we can start finessing these things a lot and getting potential, for example, medical uses like psilocybin, getting that really nailed down because now we can do it in a more controlled way. Um, and I'm excited by that. And I'm excited by new ways of doing things, new experiences, new colors, new flavors, and most of all, the idea of doing it in an ecologically sustainable way. I mean, so much of our industry has been so important for so long, but we're at a point where the planet cannot take it anymore. And I think these approaches are gonna be really powerful ways to have a sustainable future. And like you said, with Mars, we take the stuff with us when we go. If you can do it in um, little tiny containers, if you can do it in a decentralized fashion, I think all of that really sets us up for success in all kinds of future use cases, whether it's a warming planet or whether it's Mars or whether it's something even crazier that I can't even think of. Um, I'm really excited there. So I think if I had to pick one thing, it would be synthetic biology. We've seen it, um, that's where your COVID vaccines come from. There's just so, so much innovation that still is ahead of us. I think it's thrilling. If I'm not mistaken, in some of your lectures, you're saying we are going to have only four questions, right? Uh, uh, mm -hmm. Should it be done? And yes. uh, is there a need? So yeah, so I always recommend um, friends out there, when you're thinking about these technologies or these innovation spaces that are really um, embedded in the idea of life or being alive or our conceptions of ourselves as humans. Um, I love this framework that came from some researchers in Mexico who were working on genetically modified mosquitoes. And so here are the four questions that they use. The four, first question is, is there a need? So that's usually like a public health question, for example, or an agricultural question. The second question is, can it be done? That is a scientific or a technological question. Those are my absolute favorite kinds of questions. Can we even do this? The third question is, um, is it legal? So that is a regulatory question. Our laws, are our laws going to allow this innovation to go forward? Now, um, we can talk more about that if you want. You know as well as I do that mostly our laws look backward. They're not looking forward. Yeah, you, so the you, regulatory aspect. Funny, yeah, it was very funny when you gave the lecture in Canada, in SU Canada, and you said that you met with some people from the government and they asked, what should we do to make uh, ca Canadian more in innovative? Says, simply don't put them in jail, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. This is what yes, yes, I was really quite worked up about that. And that particular example, uh, so several, it's not just Canada, there are quite a few countries around the world that have a law on the books making it a felony for someone to um, have a heritable genetic change be put into an embryo. Now that was a reaction to Dolly the sheep. Remember poor Dolly, the first you know, cloned sheep? Um, it was a throwback to that. And so maybe 10 or 15 years ago, people were like, we don't want cloned sheep. But now are they willing to say, 
we don't want a cure for sickle cell anemia. We don't want a cure for cystic fibrosis because that's a, a potentially a heritable genetic change. So yes, when Canadian government ministers said to me, how can we be leaders with CRISPR? I said, don't put your scientists in jail, change the rule. Okay, so regulation was our third question. And our fourth question is, should it be done? And that is a moral question. And it becomes much more difficult to answer because on individual levels and in social levels, society levels, we have very different moral compasses from each other, right? We're humans, that's what kind of makes us amazing. But when we're talking about technologies that have the potential to change an entire species, like mosquitoes, for example, um, or humans, right? With these genetic changes that we can make that are either somatic, meaning they stay in your own body or they're germline, meaning you pass them on to your children and their children, and their children. Those are much bigger questions. And uh, you might remember in uh, November of 2018, when the MIT Tech Review broke the news that two baby girls yeah. had been yeah. born who were the first children to be, have been edited, uh, gene edited as embryos. Um, there's at least one more child out there that nobody's talking about um, who was born. And you know, we don't know how many more. That's a whole long thing that we can unpack later. But what was really shocking about that was folks like George Church and Jennifer Doudna and Tim Jung and all these scientists have been doing a great job hosting these deliberate ethical conversations. And then suddenly, blam, there it was on YouTube that it was too late. These, these girls have already been born. In fact, I recently read a wonderful book about Jennifer Doudna called The Code Breaker by Walter Isaacson, which I yeah. highly recommend to everybody to read, it's great. Yeah. And while he was interviewing her, you know, a few years ago, she said something like, oh, you know, and 30 years from now, when we have the first gene edited human, then we need to be ready to handle that. And as I was reading that, I thought to myself, those babies were actually already growing in their mother's body. It wasn't 30 years. It was, you know, less than a year before this was going to happen. And so again, you know, I just said, I'm often wrong about this stuff. Jennifer Doudna was wrong about when the first CRISPR human was going to be born. It happened much faster than we thought. So I'm really excited about the should we conversations. I think they're really important to have. Can you, can you, and I, can you sorry, no, no, can you just, sorry. I just wanted to, no, I'm sorry, you, I stopped you, but I, I just wanted, because you had in one or, or two of your talks, we talked, you talked about CRISPR, but in the agriculture domain. And I think there as well. So I thought it's yeah. going to be interesting to hear your opinion about this, because this is the same thing. You know, you, you change your whole species, doesn't matter of what, but then perhaps you right. save the world from uh, hunger. So, but if you yes. want to drink for a second, <laughs> if you want to- Oh, yeah, I was going, I was going please, for my cup please, of tea. Please, please, no, please, please drink. <laughs> no, I'm okay, I'm okay. So yeah, so gene, gene editing in agriculture actually had a very interesting, um, had an interesting few years, uh, a couple of reasons. One, again, the regulatory burden for a new technology in agriculture is different than the regulatory burden for say human health or medicine. So a lot of us thought, okay, agriculture is actually the first place we're gonna see this because bodies like the USDA and some of these EU commissions um, it's different than trying to say, actually put this in a human body. Now, what was interesting, of course, is you remember from the whole GMO thing, we talked about the genetic recombination that happened in the 1970s. And so that started coming up in food products, uh, largely, but not exclusively 
to change the amount of pesticide that you had to put on a crop. So the idea was using these genetic modifications, you could use less pesticides, okay? So now in Europe in particular and in other parts of the world, people got this idea that genetically modified meant bad or that it meant unnatural. And I'm gonna just tell you the same thing. There is absolutely no scientific evidence that GMOs are negatively impacting human health. Zero. It's all marketing. That's all it is. There's, there's no science behind this. And yet people got this idea that GMOs were bad, especially in Europe, not in other parts of the world. So the thing that the, the way the European courts had defined GMO was saying you're taking a gene sequence, a DNA sequence from one species, and you're inserting it into another species. That's the definition of genetically modified organisms. So back in like 2017, 2016, when CRISPR is really starting to take off, people said, well, you know, CRISPR is really more like the eraser on a pencil. You're not putting anything in from an exogenous source. You're just changing what's already there. So maybe we can use that truth about the science to change this crazy mindset that people have gotten into about these things being bad or hurtful. And so interestingly, this is again where the regulatory landscape divided. So in the US, interestingly, the USDA said, we're not gonna regulate this. And then the FDA stepped in and said, well, wait a second, we're talking about something that modifies the structure or the function of something that you eat. And so that falls under our domain. So the FDA said, we're gonna take a look at this. And that is still the way it's done now. The European courts, however, went through this whole long system. And at the end of the day, the courts ruled that gene editing technologies like CRISPR were effectively the same as GMOs. And so they would be regulated the same way. And this was so disappointing, not just to me, but to many, many scientists and innovators through the field. But like, first of all, you have fundamentally misunderstood the science. That's one thing. And second, it's like you're taking the most powerful tool that we have seen in many years and saying, no thanks, we don't want it in Europe. We don't want to use it to fight climate change. We don't use it, we don't want to use it to help make our food sources more sustainable and more resilient. And most important, we want everyone who's innovating in that space to leave Europe and to go somewhere else where their work is welcome. And I just I couldn't I couldn't get my head around that, right? So I think there's an opportunity here to look not just at how the technology is, is uh, advancing, but to look at the stories that we tell about the technology, the stories that we tell about why we're doing this, how it was made, who it was made by, right? Scientists are people. They're people with families, right? Actually take that and think carefully about how we're telling these stories. You've seen that as well in, during the COVID-19 pandemic. All these banana stories about vaccines and drugs and things like that that are just so obviously false. Yes. But there were a lot of missteps where scientists and regulators didn't do a good job at the beginning telling the story in a way that was both truthful, but also really appealed to what people care about. And we're seeing a pivot with that now, but uh, I, you know, I hope it's not too late. My hope is that with COVID-19, we're gonna use this pandemic as a dress rehearsal for tackling climate change and for any of these other existential crises that humans are, um, humans are witnessing. And I'm just really excited to see 
scientists and technologists stepping up and saying, this is me, this is my work, this is what I did, I'm really proud, here's why I did it. And look, I'm a person like you. I just, I think there's a lot of potential there for some wonderful stuff to happen. So can you talk about, would you like to drink for a second? <laughs> I'll have a sip of tea, of my course. decaffeinated tea. Of course, <laughs> please. So first, if you want, if you want first, if you want to finish the idea regarding the morality issue, please. And yeah. then I think it's going to be very interesting. What is can be the best scenario of us tackling, you know, climate change using biotech and anything else? I'll be delighted to hear. Yeah. So I guess the the last piece I want to say about the morality issue is I, I think here are the things that I think are most important about it. Number one is each of us understanding that these types of radical advances in biotechnologies, they affect all of us. We're going to be seeing them more and more uh, in our daily lives. We're gonna be benefiting from them more and more in our daily lives. And we're gonna be making more and more choices as individuals about how we wanna access these technologies and what we want them to do for us. And so what I'm trying to say is all of these ideas about gene editing and you know, all this stuff, it's not our kids' question to answer. It's not our grandkids' question to answer. It's ours right now, today. This isn't somebody else's problem. This is our problem and potentially our benefit. And so, you know, when you log off today from this podcast, go have dinner with your family, tell them about some of the things you've heard about today, and then ask them what they think about eating food that doesn't damage the environment but isn't exactly the way it was 10,000 years ago. Or um, thinking about if you could cure someone's genetic disease, is that okay? And can you make sure that their kid never has that disease? Are you okay with that? There's all of these really interesting um, moral questions that we all think are somebody else's problem. And they're not, there are opportunities. So I think that's the biggest thing I wanna say about morals is don't wait, start doing this thinking and this talking now because technology moves so much faster than any of us would believe otherwise. Um, and what was the, the second part of your question? And then how do we tackle you know, climate change? I think you have yeah. beautiful ideas about that. And I think it will be wonderful to share it with the, with the community and beyond that. I think you have beautiful ideas. Yes. So I think there's lots of ways we can use biotechnology to tackle climate change. So one way like we talked about is radically reimagining the industrial processes that we use to get in particular, you know, biology is great for food, fuel, and fiber. So how can we rework our supply chains, our resources, all of these things using biology in order to make all the food, the fuel, and the fiber that we need, but without using these highly damaging industrial processes that have worked really well for us in the past, but we can't use anymore because they're not sustainable. So that's one thing. Um, we can also be using biotechnologies, and I'm really excited with some AI work as well that's going on in this area, to understand, to predict where we can expect particular types of shifts happening. So, for example, we know as the planet warms that growing zones are going to be shifting northward, right? So there's going to be a period of time where the Arctic is going to be a heck of a lot more productive as a growing region than it has been in human memory. But then that's not actually the goal, right? Like we wanna keep the Arctic cold. So how can we either design plants and animals that are gonna be more robust to this type of thing? 
you mentioned George Church. George Church is resurrecting woolly mammoth, right? And part of the argument for doing that, which I maybe partially believe, I don't know, I just sort of really want to see woolly mammoths. But, you know, part of the argument there is that the woolly mammoths were something that was being used to help clear the ground cover on the permafrost, right? With those big tusks, they were kind of like scraping away the ground cover. And so that meant that the plants weren't helping to hold warmth in the ground. So that helped the permafrost stay colder. That's one example I've seen of this. So do I think woolly mammoths are the silver bullet for fighting climate change? No, but I'm totally excited to see a woolly mammoth. Totally excited. Um, so, so how are ways, what are the different ways we can use to either shore up the living things that we have now that are struggling in the face of climate change, like our coral reefs, right? There's some really exciting coral biology going on right now where folks are trying to figure out how can we engineer temperature resistant or acid resistant coral and get them out in the ocean to try to make sure that, you know, the coral reefs could be gone in our lifetime, right? Mm -hmm. Not our kids' mm -hmm. lifetime, our lifetime. And that's actually why I'm really keen to get my kid scuba certified uh, in the next couple of months as he turns 10, because I'm scared he's not going to get to see these mm -hmm. amazing things that have given me personally so much joy and pleasure, but are, are just, again, an example of how awe-inspiring life on our planet is. So, uh, and also, again, thinking about corals, folks are doing really cool things where they're using 3D printing in order to 3D print scaffolds. And then you see these um, potentially modified coral polyps on the scaffolds so that they can grow more quickly and hopefully establish themselves um, while the water is transitioning to a different temperature or a different acidity level. I love stuff like that. I think it's really awesome. Um, and then really just thinking about how can we also do things like people say, um, we need to get carbon dioxide out of the air, right? Well. The greatest carbon sink on earth is life. So how can we be using life as carbon sinks to pull the carbon back out, sequester it for a while, while at the same time, we're mitigating, we're reducing our emissions. Mm -hmm. So people are like, let's plant a hundred million trees. Like, I don't know. I don't know that more trees is, is ever the bad choice. It's like when people say, what should I do for my health? And I tell them eat more vegetables. Vegetables are always the right choice. Trees are possibly the right choice too. And remember, that's not something we have to invent. We already have trees. <laughs> we just have to figure out how do we get enough of them in the ground to make a difference? How do we protect them and make sure nobody cuts them down like we're seeing the awful deforestation, for example, in the Amazon, but that's by no means the only place in the world where this is happening. So I'm, I'm, really, um, I'm really scared about the future in terms of climate change, but I'm also really hopeful too. Because I think if any group of people in human history has to be set with this existential challenge, we are the best, um, we're, we're the best prepared. We are, uh, we've got the best technology behind us. We've got so many people all over the world who are able to help solve the problem. And there's really this growing understanding that we don't get a do-over, right? This, this is it. Um, yeah. As excited as I am about Mars, I don't actually believe in using launching humans off Mars as a way to save our species. You cannot launch enough people fast enough. Our home is it. This is our home. And so everything we can do to make it beautiful and hospitable and to remember that we inherited this planet 
from every living thing that came before us. And if we destroy it on our watch, what does that say about us? What kind of legacy are we leaving for the universe if we do that? So I, I really just, I really believe that this is our moment. This is humanity's moment. And I think biotechnologies are gonna be some of the strongest tools we have to leave behind a legacy that we can be proud of for all of our generations. Right now, if someone, someone of our listeners is calling and saying, you know, you have an endless budget, you can take the best people in the world, what would you do? What would be your dream project? Oh man, I only get one. <laughs> no, no, it's a limit. It's it's an unlimited budget. Well, you can do more than one. But I'm so, I was curious, what would be your first choice? So we haven't talked about this at all today. But uh, one of the things I'm really excited about are um, micro the microbiome. So the the idea of these communities of bacteria and fungus and viruses and all these things that together can put together these really amazing outcomes, right? Like they can, they affect human health, they affect soil health, they affect plant growth, all of these things. If I had an unlimited budget, I would drive forward by 20 years, the construction of synthetic, bio, uh, synthetic bacterial communities mm -hmm. that do something that we want, that reverse obesity, that reverse malnutrition, that make it so that we don't have to put pesticides or um, fertilizers on our soils anymore. I would throw everything at that. Uh, again, the biology is the technology and taking a synthetic viewpoint where we just say, here's what we want, here's how we build it. I think that's what I would do. And I have so many more ideas about that, but that's another conversation. <laughs> that's wonderful. And uh, would you like to share with us a little bit about what you're doing these days, what, what you're sure. capable of the project that you're doing, and if you want to talk about singularity or whatever you feel like. Sure. So, uh, gosh, I do a lot of things these days. So I am the Vice Chair of Digital Biology and Medicine at Singularity University. So through their global community, I'm lucky enough to get to talk to innovators and leaders and companies about um, technology in the future, particularly the life sciences and medicine. So that's really great. Just last week, uh, the Singularity University Columbia Summit happens, and that was really fun oh, really? Um, getting to work wow, with the team in Columbia. Wow, you've so, been to Colombia? Uh, no. Never, I've never been to Colombia. <laughs> yes, um, but hopefully once COVID is under control, there will be a bit more uh, travel that I can do and, and feel good about. So that's, that's one piece. Um, I, I also, you know, through um, my own efforts and through some wonderful colleagues that I have, I get connected to all kinds of companies doing all kinds of amazing things around the world who want me to talk to their innovation teams, or maybe they're, they're putting on a festival, an innovation festival, and would I come give a talk virtually or in person? So that's really awesome. I am also a non-resident fellow at the Geotech Center for the Atlantic Council, which is a nonpartisan think tank that is advising policymakers um, all around the world, but particularly on both sides of the Atlantic, about how to use human-centered technologies for prosperity and peace, which I think is wonderful and is so important. And, um, I get to meet amazing people. And every time I do an event through the Geotech Center, I learn something amazing. There's tons of free online programming and I would just love to encourage people to check one out because they're awesome. Um, and then the other thing I, I'm doing a lot of these days, two more things. One is I am a member of the sixth cohort 
of the Homeward Bound program of women leaders at STEM. So I am meeting um, women scientists from all around the world and working on uh, conservation policy in particular. But how do we get more women in position? And how do we get people in the room where the decisions are being made, right? We need more women. We need more people from all over the world. And especially looking at climate change, I'm just so excited about that. Um, so that's that. And then the last piece that I'll tell you about is um, I've gotten able to uh, work more with the space industry. So through Humanity in Deep Space and also with Explore Mars, um, I'm helping folks explore two sets of questions. So for Explore Mars, which when we have a, we, I'm going to be moderating a panel for them next month at the Humans to Mars Summit. So come see me there. Plug um, is we're looking at how are all the technologies that folks are inventing for space industry and space exploration. How is that actually benefiting life on Earth? And so that's really cool, and that's that's going to be fun. And then with humanity in deep space, we're a group of people who are asking, okay, let's assume that we can get humans off Earth in large numbers. We can go far away. We can go to Mars. What do we want to be as people when we get there? What do we want humans to be when they live leave Earth? So I've talked to poets. I've talked to anthropologists. I've talked mm. to um, geneticists. I've talked to architects all people from all over the world saying, what do we want to take with us as humans when we go? And what do we kind of want to leave behind and view this as a chance to build a brand new future for us as a species? And those are really exciting conversations for me as well, because it's not just about solving technology problems, right? It's about saying, who do we want to be? Who do we want to be remembered as? And I think that's a really important conversation. Humanity, humanity point three or something like this. Yes, exactly. <laughs> wow. Tiffany, may I say to our listeners that hopefully you will be vis visiting Israel and... Yes, yes. So um, my hope is um, that my, my scientist husband and I and our son will be able to come to Israel in December. We've had that plan on the books for a long time. Of course, we all know what's happening with Delta. So we have not booked plane tickets yet, but I, I, we all deeply hope that we will be with you um, in December and that I'll get to meet some of you while I'm there. Yes, yes, definitely. We will, people will, are going to line up to meet you and we're going to have a soiree or an evening. So yeah, for both of you, yeah. Um, any last words you want to say? Anything that I didn't ask you? Anything was very important and I didn't ask? What no, I mean... I guess the thing that I want to leave everybody with is the reason I do this work is because every morning I look outside and I look at the natural world and it is so beautiful and so weird and so unique and so awe-inspiring that I can't stop looking at it. And I think if I can get even one of you to go close your laptop and go look outside and find something beautiful and amazing in the natural world or even in your own bodies, then I've done my job today. And Yali, thank you so much for giving me the chance uh, to connect with this thank audience. You. Life is beautiful and it has so much more to give us, uh, but we have to be good stewards of it and we have to design the best possible future. And I think we can do that together. I totally agree. It was such a pleasure. Beautiful. Thank <laughs> you usual. so much. As usual, you're a source of inspiration. We, I'm, I'm finishing, you see the, the smile on my face. So. It's, it's been great. Uh, so hopefully we'll see you here in Israel or might be that I'll see you in Singularity before that. Uh, 
and we'll see each other next week in any case. So I sincerely hope so. Stay safe, everyone. Stay healthy and stay optimistic. Thank you. Bye. Okay.